3 of Zephaniah this evening, and a little bit of a full disclosure here before we begin the third chapter. This third chapter, with the exception of the section we're looking at this evening, is very challenging with respect to the rhetorical or literary units. And I'm warning you of that ahead of time because you get the softball tonight. In other words, the first five verses are easy to segment. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But from verse 6 to the end, um, there is a challenge. And I'm going to try to take up that challenge as we move ahead. And Lord willing, as we move ahead, we will finish the book of Zephaniah. Uh, before uh, the Christmas break. So probably the first week in December we'll wrap up the prophet Zephaniah. All right, now, as you examine those first five verses, I've already given you a clue that this is a literary unit in its own right. As you examine it, you scan over those five verses, what would you say is the kind of identifying or distinguishing characteristic of these five verses. Very good, Andy, very good. It is not just the Hershey, but you'll notice that it is the use of the third person personal pronoun. Hershey is the feminine singular. You also notice the plural they in verse 4, which is also third person. And you'll notice the name his and he, third person masculine singular in verse 5. Now, when you look at verse 6, what do you notice immediately? The pronoun changes, doesn't it? It changes the first person singular to the I pronoun. That's the break which indicates the difference in the first unit of this third chapter, verses 1 to 5, and the second or third or fourth units which follow out of chapter 6. Now, there's something else which is obviously going on, and we'll take our clue from verse 6. You pointed out that you noticed the I personal pronoun. So now we're going to ask the question, who is the speaker in verse 6. That is the Lord himself. Very good. So God is the speaker in verse 6 and following. Who is the speaker in verse 1 to 5? It is the prophet. Very good, Bob. All right, so... We've noticed this change in speaker, which we've also observed in earlier parts of this prophecy. Namely, there's this dialogic style. They back and forth dialogue between the prophet and God, God and the prophet. So that's another thing which distinguishes these first five verses. It is the prophet speaking in chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, then God's picks up the dialogue, he begins to speak in verse 6 and following. All right, so we've uh, established the parameters of uh, of the structure of the first five verses based upon the use of the third person 
pronoun and also the speakers. The change in speaker in verse 6 indicates that we've moved from the prophet to God himself. Now, the next question has to do with the city which is named or referred to in verse 1. What city is this? And how do you know? I think it's Jerusalem. Okay, thinks it's Jerusalem. Okay. And Very good. Excellent. That's exactly how we would make the identification. Now, what could the other possibility be with respect to the identity of this city? Just, you know, hypothetically speaking, is there another option for the identity of this city? Samaria? Samaria? No, too late for that. We're, we're long down. Go ahead. Which verse, Kay? Yes, you, you've got it right. She said Nineveh, and you'll see that that word city appears in verse 15. In other words, the previous verse, before chapter 3, verse 1, refers to a city that we identified last week as Nineveh, and we could conceivably have a hook pattern here, namely that city in verse 15 is hooked into city in 3.1, 2.15 and 3.1, but, as Kay points out, would the prophet, Zephaniah, be saying to Nineveh, if Nineveh were the city in 3.1, that she did not draw near to her God? At least not the God of Judah. Bob? Well, Jonah went and preached Nineveh. <laughs> yes, good, good observation. They, they did repent. Uh, is that generation still alive? No, not when Zephaniah is preaching. It is, not, it is not alive. That generation is not alive anymore. It doesn't mean there might not have been some leftovers, but no, he's not addressing the city of Nineveh as a city which is drawing near to Yahweh or to the covenant God of Israel, Judah. All right, so... We identify the city as Jerusalem. We look at the previous reference to city, namely Nineveh. And we ask ourselves the question, they are not the same city, it's two different cities, but is there any interface? Is there any relationship between Nineveh and Jerusalem? Is Zephaniah trying to say something by placing the reference to the two cities Contiguously, close together. Ah, this is a potential mirror paradigm. That is, Jerusalem, which is receiving the words of God's judgment through Zephaniah in verses 1 to 5, is also like Nineveh, which is going to receive God's judgment through the words of the prophet the, uh, Zephaniah in 612 B.C., when it will be destroyed. <clears throat> Judah, or Jerusalem, is a mirror image of Nineveh. With respect to what, might you suggest? How would Jerusalem be a mirror reflection of Nineveh? Radical. Radical? 
Tyrannical. Tyrannical. I don't want to hold off on the translation of that word. Okay, I recognize that it's in the New American Standard. <clears throat> but, uh, <clears throat> well, what, what would you say is tyrannical about Jerusalem? Okay, if we take that word as it is in the NASB and maybe in the versions you're reading. How is Jerusalem tyrannical? We know about Nineveh's tyrannical uh, <clears throat> a character. Well, the way mine is worded, I would say that they are um, they are profaning, according to the, it says profane what is holy. They do violence to the law. Okay, let's hold off on that for a moment. Let's just focus on the issue of tyranny. Go ahead, Randy. God compares them to lions and wolves. Okay, but what's tyrannical? Wolves and lions are tyrannical, aren't they? <laughs> Well, you could you could say that in some uh, similar sense, but a, a tyranny. A tyranny. What, when we think of a tyranny, what are we thinking of? Oppressive. Oppressive. In fact, that's the way the word is used in verse nineteen of chapter three. It's the very same word as occurs here in uh, two three one, and that's one of the reasons I hedge a little bit on the uh, the. the the translation here, I think the NASB should have been consistent with itself. It should have said oppressive city, not tyrannical. <clears throat> Does that help you any more to think about the relationship between Nineveh and Jerusalem? Yes, Assyria and Nineveh, its capital was certainly oppressive to all of its neighbors. What about Jerusalem and Judah? Is it oppressive? And if so, who's it oppressing? It's oppressive to the prophets. It's oppressing the prophets, certainly. What prophet in particular is it oppressing? Zephaniah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah, okay. We don't know whether Zephaniah was suffering persecution or oppression, but we do know that Jeremiah was, and he's a contemporary. <clears throat> All right, so there is this oppressive force or feature in the character of Jerusalem in the days of Zephaniah. <clears throat> now, there are other things that we'll detail in a moment, <clears throat> but nonetheless, it's enough to establish the point <clears throat> that there is an intentional reflection on the use of city proximately or contiguous, contiguously that is within the space of one verse. Zephaniah is intentionally saying, Jerusalem, you're just like Nineveh. You're the mirror image of that pagan nation's capital. And you are the capital of the people of God. You are the capital of Judah, the nation of the Lord. And yet, you behave, you act, you look from the outside as an, like an oppressor just like Nineveh. With the one exception that Judah and Jerusalem are not sending their armies abroad to crush the neighboring kingdoms around them. So this is an internal oppressive atmosphere. <clears throat> it is internal in terms of the population of Judah and Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day. And he details that in the successive verses 2 through 5. All right. <clears throat> now he begins <clears throat> this chapter 
with that uh, oracular apostrophe, namely the Hebrew word hoi, which means woe. We've had that word before. Zephaniah has used it once before. Do you notice where it is? Chapter 2, verse 5. <clears throat> All right, now notice what fe- what function it serves. <clears throat> In chapter 2, verse 5, it is part of a series of judgment oracles against the Philistines, against the Cushites, and against the Assyrians, including Nineveh. <clears throat> so, from 2, 5 to the end of the chapter, verse 15 of chapter 2, we have God's judgment oracle against the nations west, east, south, and north of Judah and Jerusalem. Now, in chapter 3, he begins a judgment oracle against Jerusalem itself. So, the woe clause, or the hoi in Hebrew, the hoi declaration is establishing the beginning of a series of judgment oracles. It therefore serves as a rhetorical anaphora. That is, it signals the beginning of a section, the beginning of a rhetorical unit. Two, five to 15 rhetorical unit of judgment against the nations outside of Jerusalem. Three, one, a rhetorical signal that now he is sent, he is giving a judgment oracle against his own nation, against the nation of Judah. So, the woe word signals the beginning of an unfolding series of judgment statements. All right. Now, we commented on the translation of tyrannical here in verse 1. The New American Standard translates the very same Hebrew word in verse 19 of this third chapter as oppressive. And so, uh, I'm going to keep that flavor uh, within the meaning of the word here in verse 1. Woe to her who is rebellious and defiled, the oppressive city. All right, now, what about those terms rebellious and defiled. How has Jerusalem been rebellious? Particularly if we're correct, namely that Zephaniah is mirroring Nineveh in Jerusalem. So how has Jerusalem been like Nineveh in rebellion or rebelliousness? That's the word we wanted, okay? Sins of what, Cheryl? Sins of idolatry. Idolatry. Were the Ninevites idolaters? Yes. Did the Assyrians worship idols? Yes. Are the children in Jerusalem, children of Judah in Jerusalem, worshiping idols? Where are they worshiping them? In the temple. Even in the temple. Now, not necessarily in Josiah's day, because he had purged the temple. But if Zephaniah is aware of Ammon's day, Josiah's father, 
or Manasseh's day, then he would know about the idolatry that was brought into the temple. Or if we project Jehoiakim's day, there's also the corruption of the temple with idol worship. All right, so in one sense, the rebellion would be a rebellion of idolatry, which would be true in Nineveh, as it is now true, Zephaniah is charging in Jerusalem. All right, now what about that word defiled? What does that suggest? And how is that a mirror reflection of Nineveh? Sexual immorality? Possibly. Possibly. Anything else? I'm not going to rule that out. Uh, anything else? I'm sorry, Abigail. They marry Gentiles? They marry Gentiles? No, I don't think it's that. It has to do with ritual, doesn't it? It, it may have, uh, uh, Cheryl's note suggested, it may have something to do with ritual worship. In other words, they've corrupted the worship of God. Now, it's certainly true in the case of Nineveh because they refused to worship him. But that's also going on in terms of the order of service, the order of ritual uh, worship style that's going on in the temple. It is defiled. It has been corrupted by disobedience, corrupted by false worship, false sacrifice, and false practices. And this is where... Uh, Dan, your suggestion about sexual immorality may come in. It may also overlap into the sacred prostitution, which was a part of the Baal cult, which had also been brought into the temple in uh, the days of Manasseh, Ammon, and perhaps even Jehoiakim. All right, so, yes, go ahead. Question. Uh, Concerning rebellious and defiled, do you think that verses 2, 3, and 4 speak... I think they do. And in a moment, you'll see that at the bottom of your first page, that verse 1 is being expanded by verse 2. So we'll, we'll look at that in detail. All right. Now, that brings us to verse 2. And as you scan that verse, what strikes you? Okay, what else? There's the word. No, no, not, not. Okay, what else? Put it all together. There's a rolling symmetry here, isn't there? There's a rolling parallelism. In fact, I've outlined it for you. If you look at the Hebrew text... You'll notice that there is a precise alignment in the first two sections, or the first two colas of verse 2, and there is a precise alignment in the last two colas, or the last two sections of verse 2. In the Hebrew, you have the occurrence of the word not, followed by two two-syllable Hebrew words, not heeded voice. In the second line, we have the same pattern as the first. The Hebrew word not plus 
two two-syllable Hebrew words, not accepted instruction. I'm going to make a suggestion about the translation of instruction in a moment, but nonetheless, we observe the fact that this pattern is symmetrical. It's exactly parallel. However, in the last two cola, Zephaniah changes his procedure. He places a preposition first, then he gives the name of God. In uh, 2C, he uses the covenant name Yahweh. Then he uses the negative term, the not word. And he follows that by one three-syllable Hebrew word. In the last section, in the last cola of verse 2, he does the same thing again in parallel. Begins with a preposition, uses a name for God, this time the universal name for God. God as the creator, Elohim, followed by the negative not plus one three-syllable Hebrew word. Now, the symmetry, the parallelism, is in fact, for want of a better term, a stacking paradigm. If you would line these Hebrew phrases out, one on top of another, you would see that they would stack up in exactly symmetrical style. In fact, there would be words that would be repeated in precisely the same position. So he's stacking one let one cola atop of another, and he does it twice over. Now, when there's repetition in Semitic literature, Hebrew literature, biblical literature, when there's repetition, what's he doing? What's the writer doing? doesn't make any difference whether it's Zephaniah, whether it's the psalmist, whether it's Jeremiah. When there's repetition, what's going on? It's amplifying, it's, it's intensifying. That's exactly right. In other words, he's advancing, he's expanding his image, his metaphors, his images, whatever happens to be the substance of that line. Okay, so why is he doing this? Why is he making this expansive stacking paradigm? Because he is actually going back to verse 1. And with respect to verse 1, rebellion and defiled, he is going to double his exposition or his accusation of exactly what that rebelliousness is and precisely what that defilement amounts to. So the stacking paradigm in verse 2 is exegetical of the accusation in verse 1. He's going to expand upon what he charged them with, namely rebellion and defilement, in verse 2. Now, before we get to that, I'll pause for a moment, and, and, and if you have any questions, I'll be glad to address them. Okay? Now, let's begin with the word voice there. What's this, what's this term voice referring to? Yes, it refers to the word of the Lord through the prophets. It's the voice of God through the prophets. All right, so now we've got the context. This is a direct charge. This is a direct accusation that Zephaniah lodges on behalf of God against 
the children of Judah and Jerusalem, that they have not listened to the voice, to the word, to the very sacred lists, as Calvin would put it, of God's own infallible word. All right, now, in so doing, they have been rebellious. Obviously, not listening to God's voice is an instance of rebellion. But on top of that, they accepted no instruction. Now, the word instruction here, as is translated the New American Standard, would suggest, well, they weren't listening to the doctrine that God was teaching them. They weren't listening to perhaps the law. But he does not use the Hebrew word for law here, for Torah. In fact, he doesn't even use a word which usually is translated instruction. So once again, I'm taking, I'm making a criticism of the New American Standard here because I don't believe they've correctly used, they've used the correct word, the best word. Randy? My standard seems to be on a roll today. In the first verse, they had oppressive city, and here they call it correction. Very good. Uh. <laughs> well, you can't be wrong all the time, right? All right. So, the Hebrew word, most of the time, the word that is used here, translated instruction by the NASB, is, as Randy points out, thanks to the RSV, usually translated correction, chastisement. That is, discipline. So, the nuance here is not the teaching of God's word. The nuance here is how God corrected them by means of his word. So that their rebellion is rebellion against his word and against its chastening force, its corrective force, its attempt to turn them aside from their evil disposition. All right. So the first two colas then of verse 2, expanding upon rebellious in verse 1, are rebellious with respect to God's word and with respect to God's chastening hand, corrective hand. Not punishing hand, chastening hand. The chastening hand may yield to punishment, but the chastening hand is the hand of a loving father. All right, now, the next two lines in verse 2. Do they build or do they expand or do they amplify, to use Robert's word, do they amplify the word defiled in verse 1? And if so, how do they do it? When we define defiled, when we're talking about verse 1, we used its association with what? Worship. Where? In the temple. temple. All right. Now, what what do those two lines of verse 2 suggest? When you worship God, you are ostensibly trusting him, leaning upon him, confiding in him. Is that happening in the Jerusalem temple in Zephaniah's day? No, it is not. Okay. What else? They do not draw near to God. 
How do you draw near to God? If you come to the temple properly. Mark, how do you draw near to God if you come to the temple properly? Randy? Humbly. Humbly? Mm, okay. What else? An appropriate sacrifice. You perform a ritual action, correct? All right. So what's going on in the temple at Jerusalem? What ritual actions are being performed? The wrong ones. Yes, the wrong ones, which are what? Back to your original statement. Uh, well, they're related to the male worship. Which is? What ritual would that involve? How do you how do you wish how do you worship Baal ritually? Sacred prostitution. Okay, you frequent the prostitutes, both male and female. Okay, so sacred prostitution is going on inside the precincts, and do you have the proper priestly mediator? You do not have the proper priestly mediator. The priest who's pretending to be the proper mediator is actually an officiant of the cult of Baal or the officiant of a cult of a false god. So the ritual is defiled. The worship is defiled because they do not trust in the Lord and they do not draw near to the Lord in the right way. They have corrupted his worship. They have defiled it. They have polluted it. And when you look at the Baal cult, you know exactly how and in detail how they have polluted and corrupted the worship of the one true God. All right, now, we said that verses 1 to 5 are a judgment oracle, a woe oracle against Jerusalem, against the people of the kingdom of Judah. That means that God is going to judge them for what he details in verse 2. As they have dealt with the Lord God, so in reverse paradigm, God the Lord will deal with them. All right, then let's think about a reverse paradigm here. In other words, let's think of a punishment that fits the crime. No longer chastisement, but the judgment of God's punishing wrath. How would God deal with them with respect to no voice? They had no interest in the voice of God. They had no interest in the word of God. How will God visit that sin upon their head? Silence. Silence. Very good. No voice of God will speak to them. He will give them over to silence. There will be no word of God for them. Not in the day of their destruction, not in the day of their decimation and captivity. There will be no word of God for them on that judgment day. What about correction? You'll notice that I've used the proper 
translation of the word there. They would not receive correction. How will God visit them? How will he reverse his corrective mercies? He will punish them with condign wrath. And that condign wrath will consume them. He will give them up to final punishment. Is that not what came upon them when Nebuchadnezzar's army destroyed the city in 586 B.C.? Were they not given up to final punishment? Were not those who were alive before Nebuchadnezzar came to the city and who were slain in the destruction of the city, did they not face right at that moment final destruction? The final judgment fell upon them. No longer chastening and corrective, but punitive and retributive. We've grown so squishy in our modern Christian churches that we do not any longer believe in the retributive justice of God. Even a retributive justice of God that takes place within human history. What you sow, you shall reap. God will deliver, as Augustine said many centuries ago, enough retributive justice in this life to make you realize that there is an eternal retribution in the life to come. Randy, you've had your hand up. What does condign mean? Condign means with the full worthiness of the wrath being poured out. In other words, they deserve it. Dignity, you see dignity in the word dine, condign, D-I-G-N, okay? meaning they deserve it, condign, with worthiness. They are worthy of it. Was there another hand up? Okay. On to the phrase, they would not lean or trust in the Lord. God will say to them, you trust only in yourselves and the power of the world that is. I will give you up to yourselves and the powers of the world that is. The fickle, shifting powers of this world and your narcissistic self. And I will isolate and crush the weight of your insufferable ego. I will crush it with your own arrogance and pride. You will lean upon your own understanding and you will find that it is a shaken reed. You will lean upon your own ego and you will find that your ego is an inflated buffoon's balloon. You will lean upon the powers of this world because you believe that you're a mover and shaker with respect to those powers and they will betray you. They will sell you out. They will throw you under the bus. They will abandon you. And sooner and later, you will wake up to realize that this world is not your friend. It may be too late by the time you wake up to that. But nonetheless, the world does have its way of crushing the proud and the arrogant. 
Which leaves the last clause there. They did not draw near. They preferred to draw near to Satan and the kingdom of darkness, to the minions and imps of hell. You remember how Milton, in the first book of his Paradise Lost, has Satan in the bowels of hell, roiling in his terror and in the horror of being cast into eternal fire. And all around him is the pantheon of the gods of the nations, Baal, Zeus, Astarte, Isis. Why does Milton create hell in terms of Satan's pantheon? Because all of those gods of the pagan nations are the servants of the kingdom of darkness. Milton is making a brilliant theological as well as a poetic statement by the way he outlines the inhabitants of hell who have been cast out of heaven. They durst defy the omnipotent arms. He cast them down into adamantine chains and eternal fire. These gods before whom the children of Judah are bowing, these gods before whom the Ninevites are bowing, these gods are the ilk of Satan and his dominion. And that kingdom is a kingdom of death. God says, you will not draw near unto me, then you will draw near unto death. And I will give you up to the evil that you prefer. And death, with its terrible horror, will have the last word over you, because you have refused to draw near unto God, who is life and not death. Any questions to this point? <clears throat> yes, Marge? Part, you said no voice, and you said there was silence. Um, that, that's, I'm saying God is going to give them silence. I didn't get at which point that was going to happen. Uh, particularly uh, in 586 B.C. I mean, all of this is pointing to 586 B.C. So they're reaping what they have sown up to the destruction of Jerusalem in that year, in that, in that uh, consequential year. So there's going to be no voice of God at their destruction and their death and their uh, decimation. The prophets will continue to speak. That is correct. But this generation to whom Zephaniah is speaking, many of them are going to be killed in the destruction of Jerusalem, in the various sieges of Jerusalem, and they're going to have no voice of God uh, beyond the one which they refuse to hear. And even the generation of the captivity going into captivity is going to be cut off from Revelation until and if they listen to Ezekiel by the river Kibar in Babylon where they were sent into exile. Randy? The final book of the Old Testament is the prophet Malachi, which is usually dated to about 400 B.C. I think it's last because it is the last word of God before the New Testament. So there's 400 years 
of no revelation between Malachi and Matthew. But, of course, that is post-exilic, and that is revelation in the Persian era. All right. Well, uh, before we begin verse 3, let's go ahead and take our break. Uh, so we'll, and we'll unfold the rest of the three verses when you come back from your refreshments. All right, we resume with verse 3. And the first question on your outline is what types of officials are indicated in this verse? Princes and judges. Okay, let's make broader category there. These are political or governmental figures, princes, and judicial or legal figures, judges. Now, they are described as beasts of what? Beasts of prey, which means political predators and predacious judges. Zephaniah is convicting or accusing the political arm of the kingdom of Judah as being predatory. As he describes them as roaring lions. By the same token, he's describing the judicial branch of Judah's national constitution as being filled with predatory justices, predatory barristers. All right, now, they are like evening wolves. Now, let's think about the implication of the analogy. Lions. The political class in Jerusalem are like lions. They are ready to pounce, particularly pounce on the weak and the vulnerable like a prowling lion. They are brutes. They have brute power which serves their appetites, serves themselves. Now, we're not making any moral judgment about lions because lions are amoral. He's using the illustration to demonstrate how these beasts are being mirrored in these moral objects, these moral subjects, namely the rulers and the judges of Judah. Lions, particularly the male lion, 
are show-offs. They strut their means and demonstrate their pride by walking around in order to magnify themselves. They are certainly the center of the pride that they rule. And they make lots of noise. They roar to draw attention to themselves. The political class of Jerusalem is a noisy, roaring, brawling bunch. And they make all that noise, they create all that buzz to show off, to draw attention to themselves, because they are the center of their world. They are the center of the world. The world is all about them. The lion hunts and stalks to not only bring down its prey, but to silence it. It will crouch and stalk in order not only to devour the prey, but to shut it up, to squelch its voice, to make it of none effect with respect to its own existence. And while the lion may be ferocious, in protecting its own pride, it nonetheless will actually turn and devour, particularly the cubs in the pride, on certain occasions. So in other words, the lion may be protective of its own in certain circumstances, but it will destroy its own in other circumstances. Once again, there is nothing that drives the lion save its own self-interested appetite. And finally, the lion is ruled by the law of the jungle. And the political class in Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day is ruled by the law of the jungle, which law teaches that politics is the art of the survival of the fittest. Politics is the art of the survival of those with the most power. For the lion, particularly the male lion, it is all about his power. That's what his life is all about. For the political class of Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day, it's all about their roaring, lion-like power. But God has uttered a sentence of judgment against that power mentality. And he is declaring through the prophet that in essence, its days are numbered. Like the day 
of that aging, tooth-broken lion who no longer can prowl or hunt and whose body is a shell of what it was when he was a young, powerful male. And he becomes the object of the scavenger power brokers of the savannah, namely the hyenas that clean up on the powerless. Well, what about the wolves? The judicial evening wolves. The judges of the benches of the courts of Jerusalem in Zephaniah's day. Secretive, like the wolf. Prowling under the cover of darkness, like the wolf. Evening wolves. Hunting in packs. Packs which surround, demoralize, completely confuse, blindside, and destroy the prey. The wolf is an artistic hunter, if a nefarious hunter. These judges are like a pack of evening wolves, demoralizing their prey, destroying their prey, using the power of the legal system to crush their prey, tearing apart the helpless by the rule of the bench, running to ground the vulnerable, just like the wolf will simply trot, pace, run its prey to the ground. It can outlast them. These judges on the bench of Jerusalem had one more dictate. They had one more decree. They had one more higher court to use against the innocent. They had one more pack of like-minded judges to run their victims to the ground. Lupine legalists who used the law or invented other laws. Lupine legalists who used the law to violate justice and equity and then to use the courts of the law as a pretext to punish their victims. Such a judicial system was doomed to fire and destruction in 586 B.C. Randy? Forgive my ignorance again. What's lupine mean? Lupine means having to do with wolves. It comes from the Latin word for wolf, lupus canis. Now, in verse 4, we also have 
types of officials. What kind of officials do we have here? They are not political. They are not judicial. They are prophets and priests. They are religious. religious officials. They are religious spokesmen or religious intercessors. They are religious prophets, as have been suggested, and they are religious mediators or priests. Now, the word that is translated in the first line of verse 4, reckless in the New American Standard, is more accurately in the Hebrew translated wanton. Wanton. What does the word wanton mean? Full of desire. Full of desire. What kind of desires? Yes, lewd desires. The word wanton suggests immorality, immorality of a sexual bent. Does that fit the prophets and priests who are being described here? Why? To subjugate subjugate the people? Well, subjugate the people to their sexual lusts, yes. Because these prophets and priests are prophets and priests of Baal. Yes, they are pagan prophets and priests. So wanton is a very good word to describe their treachery. They are not only treacherous, they are wanton in their treacherous treachery. So what's the word treacherous mean? These theological speakers, preachers, these theological priests, mediators, these theological, this theological class is treacherous. Can't be trusted. Good. They're untrustworthy. Treasonous, okay, I like that. Unscrupulous. He, he, he also said backstabbing. Backstabbing. Sounds pretty good. Good? Well, Is a treacherous person... Well, I was thinking that something that's treacherous is it's dangerous. There's a... Following after them will not lead you to God. It will lead you to destruction. Right. Very good. <laughs> Are they deceivers? Yes. Yes, they're liars. Are the Baal prophets or the Baal priests telling the truth? Or are they telling lies? Are they preaching the truth or are they preaching deceit? Are they preaching lies? Are they preaching treachery? Treachery to Almighty God. And finally, they're profane. They profane the sanctuary. Profane here means that they're operating outside of the law of God. They are lawless. They ignore the law of God because they are consumed by the arena of the profane. Not the sacred arena of Yahweh, but the profane arena, which is against the law, the lawless arena of the pagan world the heathen world. So, these prophets and priests embrace the law of the pagan culture, 
and they lead the flock of God to to walk in that same path as they walk. They turn the temple into a pagan shrine. They turn the altar of God into a uh, seat of prostitution. They turn the worship of God into idolatry. They reject the law of the sacred. And they promote the rituals of heathen, pagan degeneracy. In every level of Judah's culture, at the governmental or political level, at the judicial level, at the theological level, and at the ecclesiastical level, Jerusalem is filled with those who will not have their covenant God in their thinking. They prefer the gods of the heathen. They prefer the law and the culture of the pagans to the word of the living God. But verse 5, the Lord is righteous within her. Now, where else do you find that phrase within her? You look up to verse 3, and you'll see the very same phrase. It's at the beginning of verse 3. It's the beginning of verse 5. It is, in fact, a framing bracket which characterizes the narrative figures in those sections. Within her, verses 3 and 4, are narrative figures who are treacherous, profane, and wanton. Within her, in verse 5, is a narrative figure who is righteous and just and dwells in the light. Now notice the contrast within verse 5 itself. God does what? God does what? No injustice. The term justice is primary here. God does no injustice. He is not unjust. That is the negative, what God is not. But there's also the positive here. What is God? God is righteous. He is synonym, just. Good. Okay. So, the verse is placing this contrast between God not being like what has been unpacked in verses 3 and 4 within her, within the city, in the positions of these leadership, theologically, judicially, um, politically, ecclesiastically. He is not in that category. But within her, he is in his own distinctive, contrastive, antithetical category. He is righteous and just in all his ways. All right, second contrast. 
The shameless does what? The shameless performs what? Injustice, okay? Using the vocabulary of the verse. The shameless does injustice. They are unjust. The shameless are, underneath God being righteous and just, they are unrighteous and unjust. That justice and righteousness will be unfolded and displayed within her, within this city. And it will be enfolded in the morning light. Notice the contrast between the evening wolves in verse 3 and the morning light of verse 5. God does not skulk and prowl and hunt in the darkness secretively. He brings his justice and righteousness to light morning by morning. Every morning in the NSB is a translation of boker, boker in the Hebrew, which means morning by morning. Now, what about the light motif here? We began in chapter 1, verse 12, noting the lamp that Zephaniah carried shine into the dark, sinful corners of Jerusalem and reflected back from that light was darkness, darkness and only darkness. God within Jerusalem in 3.5 is shining his light into this city. What is being reflected back in the light that the Lord God shines? Righteousness and justice and equity. But Jerusalem in the 7th century B.C., Jerusalem 586 B.C., is full of darkness and not light. How can this light of righteousness shine in this city of darkness? Well, as Ernst Wendland has pointed out, this fifth verse of chapter 3 is the aperture to the rest of the chapter. You camera fans know what the aperture is. It's that little tiny opening that admits the light to the photographic plate. This verse is the little tiny opening that sheds light on the rest of this book. Because you will notice that phrase within her here in verse 5. And if you turn ahead to chapter 3, verse 17 and verse 15, you will notice a phrase very similar to within her. Verse 15, 
You read, the Lord is in your midst, O daughter of Jerusalem. In verse 17, you read, the Lord your God is in your midst, O Zion. The aperture of verse 5, the light of righteousness and justice that God casts upon the city is not cast upon the Jerusalem below. That light shines in the city where he is in the midst as king over his people. That light shines in the city where he is in the midst as the victorious warrior over all the enemies of his people. His righteousness and justice, his equity and fairness shines morning by morning, day in, day out. From eternity past to eternity future, it shines forever as the light of the age to come, the light of the glory of God in the city of everlasting light. This is the light of the Jerusalem above. And this little verse is the aperture to that glorious prospect, which Zephaniah will unpack as he rolls his prophecy to the end of his oracle. No, the contrast here between God and Jerusalem below is too radically antithetical to find anything other than what Zephaniah's lamplight of verse 12 in chapter 1 reflected back upon it. In fact, up to verse 5, verses 1, 2, 3, and 4 of this chapter have been about the darkness in Jerusalem, the inky blackness in the political class, the darkness in the judicial class, the black night of the theological class. They are sons and daughters of the darkness. They are not children of the light. God is the source of light. His righteousness is an emblem of the reflection of his glorious light. His justice is a badge of his eternal equity and fairness. That light shines today as it shined from all eternity in Zephaniah's day in the new Jerusalem. The Jerusalem above, not the Jerusalem below. And it is in that everlasting Jerusalem of light that justice 
and mercy will flow down forever. Zephaniah ends his woe oracle by turning woe into weal. He will unfold more of that glorious lamp of glory as he takes you to the end of chapter 3. Come along for the ride. Come in to the light. And in that light, bask in the righteousness and perfect justice of God who dwells in unapproachable light but who has allowed you to see that righteousness in the person of his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Christ Jesus, no unrighteousness, no injustice, perfect and eternal light. Any questions or comments? Randy. Perhaps the best synonym for treacherous might be faithless. Faithless, good fit. Like them to deceit. There are lots of synonyms. Untrustworthy, treasonous, deceptive—all that. It's fine. What? Do you think verse five is, is simply a reference to the eschatological city, or I'm trying to figure out what you mean this, or if it's a reference to the eschatological city as it's also peering its light before the time in that Jerusalem, and so far as God is going to bring justice? It could be. I can't deny that. Um, I'm leaning the other way to a more perfectly eschatological light because of the radical nature of the contrast here. This is an antithetical contrast, which I think projects what is within her, namely within her Jerusalem of Zephaniah's day, which she is incapable of manifesting. So the within her, are you seeing that as within the heavenly city or within her that's where I'm leaning the heavenly city okay. so not the earthly not, not the heavenly right. city intruded into the earthly right because of the bokeh bokeh the morning by morning it is there continuously it is there perpetually it is there eternally you're welcome to press me hard I, I, I was just wondering if that is all being all true about the eschatological city, I was wondering if the uh, the, the results that are, are given, uh, you know, he will do no injustice now manifested in uh, the fact I have cut off all nations, their corner towers are in ruins, I've made their streets desolate, as if it's expressing itself in that Jerusalem below. Um, this is the aperture in verse 5. Okay, He returns in verse 6 to a different motif. I'll make my case for that next time. For good or ill. 
All right, now, Scott is pressing me on this point uh, quite well and, and, and to good effect. It makes us realize that uh, I may be emphasizing, maybe overemphasizing the uh, perfectly eschatological dimension here, uh, though I'm seeking to justify that from the type of language that's inside that fifth verse. But it is conceivable that it may be reflecting upon the Jerusalem of Zephaniah's day in some sense. So I will leave that uh, as an option, and certainly I'm uh, comfortable if I can be persuaded that that is the case, uh, but I'm leaning the other way because of what is in the verse and how it signals in your midst, in your midst, in verse 15 and 17, which is impossible for the Jerusalem below. The justice uh, not only is bringing light as far as the new Jerusalem, but that justice is being brought upon the nation in the judgment. Is it not? That's true. I mean, he's there in his justice, which demands that they be sent into exile. But that justice also has the overtone in the light of bringing justification to his people and the coming of the new Jerusalem. Fine. I mean, there's another argument for the fact that there's a, shall we say, a realized aspect to this justice and righteousness. Which the next verse is indicated. Yes. Which could be what the next verse is doing, picking up on that. As you know, I'm not persuaded of that, but, but I'm, I'm happy to have you pressing. It's fine. This is this is kind of iron sharpening iron, making me making me rethink. Any other observations or comments? Well, we leave you with the righteousness of God in Christ and the light of the kingdom of heaven. Shall we pray? Father, we thank you for the rich texture of the words of Zephaniah and the wonderful imagery that he has used to draw us into your own everlasting domain. We rejoice that we are sons and daughters of that kingdom through your beloved Son, Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for his gospel and how we, O oh Lord, pray that in our lives, our worship may be in spirit and truth and so acceptable, acceptable to you through our mediator, who is perfectly perfect and undefiled, our Lord Jesus Christ, the great high priest. We thank you that we are adherents and possessors of the benefit of his sacrifice perfect sacrifice of his righteous life for our unrighteous sins. So much of what Zephaniah has projected and considered from the standpoint of judgment has fallen upon our Savior in our place. And so much what he has projected and prophesied of redemption has come to us in grace from your Son, our Savior. Indeed, Savior of Zephaniah, too. 
So we thank you again for your word. And we ask your blessing upon our lives and upon our evening. Keep us in safety as we travel and bless us with your grace day by day, morning by morning. For Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen.